and even farther, I would say that censorship not only is about language and ideas or communication, it is actually about time, it is about space, and it is about bodies or even actions and events. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism, or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Empowerment Avenue social justice writer, abolition theorist, and community organizer, Jessica Phoenix Sylvia. Jessica is one of the contributors to the book The Press in Prison, recently published by Haymarket Books and Scalawag Media. She is currently working with the Study and Struggle program and also the author of a recent piece in Penn America called Prison Book Bans Protect Mass Incarceration. Jess, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. To start us off, do you mind telling our listeners who might not be familiar with your work a little bit about your writing, how you came to writing, and also maybe this is a way for us to get into the piece that you contributed to the Press in Prison guidebook? Yeah, um, I'm a formerly incarcerated trans woman of color, and I was incarcerated for 18 and a half years on a domestic violence-related charge, which involved my mother's ex-husband. Uh, my stepdad. And while I was in prison, I was taking college classes and I was wondering during a public knowledge class what the world actually knows about me and thinking about archives and what we know about trans folks in history. I decided that, you know what, we don't have a lot of knowledge about trans history and trans folks have been erased largely through history, uh, particularly concerning American contemporary history. And so I decided I wanted to have my voice out there and I wanted to know that I was actually speaking on who I am and not just state records or say medical records or Mm -hmm. evictions or, um, you know, debts, but I wanted my voice to be out there. And so I decided to start publishing. And one of the things that I did while publishing is just to get out there issues that are important to me and issues that are directly impacting me. And that includes incarceration and trans folks. And I was fortunate enough to be included in something called Empowerment Avenue, which was a writing cohort that developed out of COVID because there was a podcast called Ear Hustle uh, Mm -hmm. that was coming out of San Quentin, which at that time was no longer able to be continued. So Rasan Thomas started up a writing cohort, which folks can still write during COVID and get those words out there into the world. Well, I got included into this writing program. And at that time, that's when I started to have the ability to get my words out into the world. And that includes prison organizing. And more than anything, I consider myself to be an organizer before a writer. And that's how I got started writing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to always sort of ground, you know, where your practice comes from in terms of how it supports movement work or how it's informed by movement work. And I I think, you know, in terms of the context of like getting started writing during COVID, this is one of the things that you talk about in the Pan America piece called Prison Book Bans Protect Mass Incarceration. You know, the kind of way that political education and writing and reading are these moments where you can sort of stop and think and where you say ideas can sort of grow when they're not supposed to grow. And this idea of Empowerment Avenue coming out of the fact that what we saw with COVID is that in the name of public health and safety, you know, a lot of folks were um, basically deprived of any kind of like prior communication or a lot of the programs um, on the inside that were maybe like in some capacity helping people spend some of the hours of the day, not just, you know, sort of in the total control of the institution. And this is one of the things that like is so difficult about COVID, right, is that the in the pretense of public health, you had a lot of the things that were available taken away, you know, saying like, okay, well, we're going to just like completely make and and expand the, the architecture of, for example, like digital only visits. And of course, you know, there's this story that you recount in the pen piece of trying to get a book that was basically being held up by one employee, by one guard who then ends up like not even working there anymore because of a vaccine mandate that comes out, (laughs) which, you know, is um, cruel and hilarious. But in your piece, Prison Book Bans Protect Mass Incarceration from September, you know, you talk generally about censorship in prison, but this process of how book approval works and censorship generally works. Do you mind talking through that a little bit for listeners who might not be familiar? Yeah. And of course, we'll talk about why it matters so much later. But there's something called a publication review committee inside prisons. And this publication review committee is generally in Washington state prisons. And I'm sure it's different for each and every state is comprised of a couple of DOC employees who basically are have no formal education or no requirements and one librarian. Mm. And so the way that this works is anytime mail or a book comes into prison to a prisoner is if a mailroom employee, in other words, a guard, deems something unacceptable or objectionable, they can refer that for a ban or say, nope, you can't have it. And then that can potentially go to a publication review committee to be reviewed. And Uh, The review committee then decides whether or not a prisoner can have it if that prisoner decides to appeal the decision. It's, you know, this is like the ultimate kind of illustration of administrative burdens and what they're for, right? I mean, are there any um, kind of like standard guidelines for why things are denied or is it really up to the discretion of the individual, um, you know, person making the review of whatever is coming inside? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, And I can tell you that I've interviewed some different folks who uh, work for different institutions or publications. And some of what I've gotten is that basically it's whoever is a guard who has no education for this job, mind you, just decides something is objectionable. And a lot of times it seems that one of the rejections is to safety and security of the institution which is very Mm. subjective. And then another one is that something is racist, which quite frankly, oftentimes is describing something when 
uh, people of color are actually defending themselves against racial attacks. And that is deemed racist and rejected quite often. I mean, you talk about they basically denied Mariam Kaba's book, uh, We Do This Till We Free Us, because they said that it violated uh, penological objectives. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like trying to get this stuff past people, how long did it take from sort of request to when you actually were able to get that book um, to go through the process of like the request, the processing, the appeal, the, you know, dealing with like, I'm sure, did you have to sort of provide justification? Um, it sounds a lot like in a way like you have like applying for Medicaid for every single book that you're trying to read. <laughs> So that's an interesting question. And what I'd also like to discuss for later is that the process is the ban yeah. in some ways. And let's remember to revisit that. We'll park that and we'll park non-distribution. And let's, as a third thing, park the exhaustion loop. Mm. However, um, talking about this uh, particular book, it took seven months for me to get this book. Um, it was referred to a publication review committee and it took seven months for them to decide that it did not violate penological objectives. Let me give you a couple of ex examples. And there, I think there were 15 examples that this employee cited. One was uh, when Derek Chauvin was criticized for the murder of George Floyd, which apparently you can't even criticize a police officer even when they're a murderer. And the second thing that I remember to be particularly offensive was page 117 of the book, which I still remember and I will always remember in life because it is nothing more than um, ways to campaign in support of criminalized survivors of domestic violence. And I remember that particularly because I am a criminalized survivor of domestic violence who did 222 months before that. And uh, quite honestly, I can I can understand why some things may be censored and we could talk about what censorship actually is in the definition. I could understand if you want to censor a bomb making manual because I don't want to see anyone get blown up and I don't like violence. However, we're talking about a, a, a book that basically is an abolitionist um, and black feminist work of art. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, the the. <laughs> The penological objectives as the kind of framework for why this is rejected are are it, it is actually ultimately, I guess, a kind of honest um, framing, right? Like the objective of the institution is to like not just um, you know keep people inside, but also kind of like stop the kind of thinking that books like that can inspire, because the kind of feeling that a book like that can can give you right is against the objective of the institution itself like any kind of feeling of like support or joy or texts that you can see yourself in and also learn from and like engage with i mean you talk about in the beginning of this piece uh you say the thought of book bans in prison brings about the feeling of collective psychic death um which is beautiful and terrible way to phrase it you know terrible in a, a good way um just like it hurts, right? Because you see the 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 very literal thing that this book did that was so bad in the first place to this like penological objective. The reason why it could 
it was engaged with in terms of censorship was because it had the potential to like make you have thoughts and feel some way different, maybe perhaps about the institution that you were inside of at the moment. And like the fact that these kind of frameworks exist, right, where part of the way the institution is supposed to survive and perpetuate is like through preventing this kind of like experience or information or education or communication or art is really kind of actually just reflective of like the entire carceral structure as a whole. Like it, it's revealing actually, the part is revealing of like what the whole structure is actually supposed to do and how this kind of idea of like removal um, of, you know, access to these kinds of things like joy or reading or being able to just get whatever book you want, that this is also part of like the kind of logic of removal in general that's like going on in the framework of carceral protectionism, which basically is the kind of lie that like to keep the quote unquote we safe, we have to like remove people from society, like out of sight, out of mind and put into the sort of warehousing conditions where you're made available for extraction. Yeah. And, you know, let's also not forget that one of the reasons I use that terminology, that language, collective psychic death, is that let's remember, like, one of the issues I also had was that I was trying to get um, a curriculum and syllabi for a intersectional feminist course, which I wanted to propose and run in a men's prison. And more than anything, I wanted to talk about uh, racialized gender-based violence. And I was denied that curriculum. And one of the reasons was actually copyright, which was bogus. And so really? after I, yes, and after I it, yes, and after I appealed it and it, it was deemed educational material and it was not copyrighted. Well, the staff then actually appealed that decision. So the, I didn't understand how to navigate the process, which became extremely complicated at that time within the strict guidelines of, I think, three days. So I never got the uh, material, right? And so one of the reasons I'm using that language, collective psychic death, is let's remember, it's not just about uh, someone not getting a book that they should have gotten. That means that I, as someone who am potentially able to actually initiate and start an intersectional feminist class cannot do that. And that means mm -hmm. not only individuals, but a whole collective of people and, and a whole generation of people can't talk about racialized gender-based violence in a classroom setting because mm -hmm. I'm the point of access. And while, uh, um, you know, we're talking about myself and with, with this book and this curriculum and, you know, all this material, I'm the point of access where it starts with me. So if I don't get this, guess what? We can't start the class. We can't mm -hmm. have these collective discussions. That means it's another generation where we can't actively be engaged in a conversation about racialized gender-based violence. Well, and see, and that is like fundamentally what the institution must do in order to perpetuate itself, right? I mean, this is the <laughs> this is the kind of beauty of looking at this small sort of moment and this one instance of censorship, which, you know, as we'll sort of get into is is uh, really almost like a, a metaphor for the, the greater whole. And this is one of the best examples of what is called an administrative burden, which is where the system itself is set up in order to make people feel a certain way, in order to make them feel 
you know, overwhelmed, exhausted. It's a way to weed people out of access to things that they technically on paper are supposed to have access to. But, you know, the kind of system of managing administratively these kinds of very small procedural things, right, where you're like, oh, well, it's just a round of paperwork in order to to, to access it, right? That That kind of gives people this out where you tend to think of it as being available, but that actual method of access itself is a burden. It can be exhausting. It can be disabling. It can result in people, um, you know, not being able to actually follow through on the process. They often come with like, you know, ridiculous instructions that are, you know, under ridiculous time crunches. And, you know, this, this system in, in many ways is almost exactly like, things like applying for Medicaid or things like applying for SSDI, where you have more demand than the system is actually willing um, to fulfill, right? And so part of the way that that sort of mirage is maintained is through these systems of administrative burden that are really sort of set up to make it look like there's like a track or some sort of way to be like, uh, you know, to access these things, quote unquote, whatever they are. But that it's really um, just a kind of facade that's that's holding in a lot of ways, like kind of that pressure back to realize that there's something wrong with the way that we're doing things. Yeah, 100 percent. And when you're talking about those administrative burdens, um, sometimes within these systems, the folks who are in these positions acting as administrators um, have a great understanding of how these systems operate. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, sometimes they use the process as the ban. And they're so familiar with the process, they understand how to manipulate it in order to get the outcome that they want. And one of the things I've seen is uh, there was a particular professor who had a class that he wanted to teach. I don't remember what it was exactly, but uh, I remember there was a CPM who would be called the pro- uh, custody program manager who apparently didn't like that course. And it was it was probably a little bit CRT and sort of, you know, intersectional feminist. And so what she had done was to recommend it for a review two days before the course was scheduled to start. Well, there you go, right? Now, mind you, she had this information several weeks and probably even months before the course was scheduled to start. However, one of the things that she had did was to go ahead and wait until two days before the course was scheduled to start to have it reviewed. And guess what that means? By the time it is reviewed, there's the course can't happen anymore. So that way, it's not about the decision. It's about the fact that the process is the ban. Right. Absolutely. Right. No. And this is this is so important to sort of understand because I think until you've sort of participated in an administrative burden, it can sometimes maybe seem abstract, but these things are very concrete and they're leveraged to very specific um, ends. And ultimately, at the end of the day, like, as you're saying, this is not just beyond the one individual getting their one needs. This is about a kind of collective experience within the walls of the institution where you have essentially the prison administrators are using their expertise. I mean, they have the rule books, right? They're using this as a kind of way of continuing like the car- the carceral punishment through the systems of administration as well. And, you know, this is, I'm sure, like talked about in terms of the language of like safety and security and those kinds of frameworks of like the the idea that this is happening and this kind of violence through administrative systems happens through 
um, some sort of need for protecting those very administrators who are doing this at the end of the day. Yeah, well, when we talk about safety and security, I think that that's also an interesting terminology that is very blanket in the way that it works. So basically, custody or administration in prison can use the term safety and security. It covers everything. For instance, I've seen where someone who, say, is Samoan and their family does not actually read or write English sends in a letter in Samoan. Well, guess what happens? This person cannot get their letter from their family. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the prison staff cannot read the letter. That means they cannot monitor the letter and be sure that it's acceptable. So guess what? Administratively, this person cannot communicate with their family because the prison officials are do not they lack the capacity to actually surveil the letter and they've deemed it, you know, it's necessary to make sure that there's no harmful communication. So because of these sort of Eurocentric, um, you know, privileged English positions, people are not allowed to even communicate with their family. And another thing that I've seen is in this exhaustion loop, and I'll just call it an exhaustion loop. Basically, the folks who are making these decisions um, generally are from rural uh, sort of Trump country um, places, and they really don't understand the content of a lot of the material, the books and whatnot, and and don't understand some of the families, particularly uh, folks who are from urban black and brown neighborhoods, and they don't understand how to interpret things. They don't understand. And sometimes they'll look at a picture, for instance, of a black family and consider it um, a potential gang photograph. And they'll say, well, this is a security threat group. Whereas if it was a bunch of white kids, they'd let it through. But if it's if it's a bunch of black kids, now it's a gang, so they won't let it through. Well, guess what? Even at times when uh, something is uh, appealed to a publication review committee and they decide, well, you know what? Maybe the guard was wrong in this instance. There's something called non-distribution that happens. And what that means is just like what happened to me with the Ruth Wilson Gilmore book, Golden Gulag, at the end of the day, the publication review committees decided you know what, this is not security threat, um, you know, information. This, this book is not a threat to security. It should not be banned. So go ahead and give this individual their book. Guess what happened? Hmm. They, they, they use the, and I call this the, and I'll use jargon here. And this is very, a very technical term. It's called the oopsie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, oops, what happened to your book? We don't know what happened to it. So they, it's called non-distribution, really. Um, is what it is. But so here's the problem is that, and I've been told this by attorneys, unless you can actually uh, prove that they do this maliciously, there's there's no recourse. So they can right. say, whoops, we lost your book or we lost your mail, even after they've been told that they need to distribute it to the individual. And since they call it an accident, whoopsie, guess what? There's no recourse. So you still don't get that literature. You still don't get that mail. At the end of the day, basically what it means is they're telling you, we don't give a shit. We make the decision. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, in this piece, you you talk about how you were told, you know, after they did their little oopsie and they said, oh, well, it's approved. We just sent it to you. Checks in the mail. You know, don't you know that you were told that you could file a a torts claim for it, like that you could file a civil lawsuit over what the value of the book? Is that what they told you? Basically? Yeah. And well, that's it too. That's exactly it. Is at the end of the day, 
when it was determined that I should actually get that book. Guess what happened? The, the people, the boots on the ground, the custody, the guards decided, fuck that. We're not giving this book to this person. And maybe it was just an accident. So guess what? We can call it whatever we want to call it. But at the end of the day, I've seen far too many of these. Guess what's happened? Even in terms of my health care, I've had that censored. I actually, in terms of gender affirming health care as a trans woman, had three different appointments with a surgeon that DOC made sure that I missed consecutively. <laughs> Whoopsie. See, and this is this is the point. The first one, this is an appointment with a surgeon for gender affirming health care. Whoops, uh, the scheduler wrote down the wrong time. So they rescheduled it, right? So they rescheduled another appointment with the surgeon. Whoops, now we can't get the telehealth equipment to work. So now guess what? The surgeon is so frustrated. He says, fine, I'm not doing telehealth. You have to physically bring her to me. Guess what happened? They had a special transport with two guards driving me across the state and housing me for five days in this hospital. Whoops, they got me to my appointment late. Even though it was a 15 minute drive from the hospital, they somehow got me there half hour late, which meant that my appointment was canceled once again. And so, and I've even talked to an attorney after this and, and they told me, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do about this because unless we prove they did it on purpose, there, there's no recourse. So all they, they have to do is whoops. This is, this is another uh, example of non-distribution. At the end of the day, even though the policy says this is what they do, mm-hmm. all they have to do is say, sorry, we fucked up. Whoops. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, there was this uh, there was this recent decision in the Fourth Circuit Court where um, they allowed uh, gender dysphoria as a qualifying impairment under the ADA. And one of the reasons why uh, it had been appealed and sort of got up to that level in the first place was because, you know, categorically, basically, even though this woman, this trans woman was tortured by the prison guards, basically via denying her access to her hormones for years, um, that they had made, the prison guards had still, the lower court determined like, oh, they had still made like a reasonable uh, effort to get her her medicine, even though like the the court documents like clearly uh, documented and demonstrated like intent and just incredibly aggressive behavior, you know, transferring her from a women's prison to a men's prison after a ridiculously invasive exam where like the nurse even like said some shit like, oh, we're going to take your medicine. You know, when you even have things like that obvious, right? Like this fucking poor woman after she's been tortured by the state, you know, her only recourse is reactive and it involves having to, um, you know, partake in the ultimate administrative burden, which is like participating in the fucking like court system to try and, you know, assert your rights. It's one of those frameworks that's just absolutely designed, as you're saying it, you know, to sort of create an exhaustion loop, right? Like there are only so many hours in the day and like, I think in a lot of ways, like this in and of itself is a type of harm. And we don't often talk about the ways that administratively, uh, you know, harm is levied uh, over and over and over again, repeatedly against people, um, particularly in the case of healthcare and trying to access gender affirming healthcare in prison. Yeah. And I, I think that what you're speaking to, um, and I'll just use the language whoops, folks, guess what? The deck is stacked. 
And quite frankly, the the people with boots on the ground, the people in the uniforms, um, don't necessarily make their decisions based on what the policies are. They decide what's going to happen in the end. And that's why non-distribution is such a big deal with not only mail or books, but even with healthcare in my mm-hmm. case, because they have power over other individuals. And at the end of the day, unless they actually confess that they did it on purpose, no one will do anything about it. Right. Right. Because the system is sort of set up to treat them as innocent and treat people who are being abused by them as dangerous in some capacity. And I mean, it's I can't even fucking imagine how awful that must have been just just like the the stress of like having an appointment to meet with a surgeon in the first place right like in and of itself outside of the context of like how you were doing it is just that is a stressful amount of like organizing and coordinating and administrative burdens to even get that first appointment but to have them repeatedly you know drop the ball so to speak, um, in, a w- in a way that, you know, not wow. only was just like so unnecessary, but also like probably so expensive for the state in such a weird way. You know, like if they had just gotten their shit together instead of being assholes to you, um, they probably would have saved the state money because the doctor wouldn't have gotten annoyed and would have done telehealth. And it's this is the kind of like bloated waste that actually exists. But we're just so used to talking about human beings as waste and not this kind of way of like how systems really waste, not just like people, but our time. And in the, in a sense, and this is something actually I talked about with with Ruthie um, when I talked to her for the show last month, which is, you know, that in a lot of ways, like bodies are just um, space in time. And part of what prison does is it the kind of logic of what the institution is supposed to sort of do is remove time from people and remove people's time from the community under this guise of, you know, quote unquote, safety for the we. Um, It's a Uh, fundamentally racist and eugenic um, process of extermination and elimination. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there are so many thoughts that I have right now, including censorship, including eugenics, including caging and exclusion, all of these things so closely tied together. And the commodification of human bodies and what happens with prison itself. And I'll just say that censorship is often thought, and we've been touching on censorship as far as books and mail and those type of things. But when we're talking about the definition of censorship and what it actually is, uh, generally we think of it as uh, the prohibition of language and ideas. And I would say it is the foreclosure of worlds and possibilities. Mm-hmm. And even farther, I would say that censorship not only is about language and ideas or communication, it is actually about time, it is about space, and it is about bodies or even actions and events. And, you know, so censorship is one of these things. It's a line that often we talk about communication. And but if you think about it, the way that things are censored, you can censor the time that things happen and the times that they don't, spaces uh, where things can happen or things can't happen. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you know, know, 
I would think of uh, a prison as actually an extreme form of censorship, meaning that you are censoring communities, Mm -hmm. meaning that you are extracting bodies from communities and thus erasing them. And not only are we, um, you know, we're eliminating a person's ability to do harm to that community, we're actually also eliminating that person's ability to do good in that community and to contribute to their family. And for long prison sentences, we are actually eliminating a person's ability to reproduce or have offspring. And so in some ways, uh, prison itself is censorship. And I would say that, you know, in censorship, I would think of as a lot of different ways. And it's not just prison. Let's think about the beginning of this country and censorship. And I would think Mm -hmm. of the laws that prohibited black folks from reading and writing and laws that would prosecute anyone for teaching a black person to read or write as censorship. And also as uh, laws against Native Americans from dancing or practicing their way of life or in Eurocentric terms, religion. Um, speaking their own language as censorship. And today I'm looking at the censorship that's happening with CRT or, um, you know, trans and gay issues and particularly women's reproductive rights as censorship of bodies. And I look at uh, trans healthcare as censorship. And I would just say this, that when we look at, there are certain folks who would want to completely criminalize healthcare for trans kids Mm-hmm. And I look at that as actually a form of preemptive genocide. And the reason that I would say that is it's not genocide in that you are killing a collective of people. It's a preemptive genocide in that you are not allowing individuals and a collective of people and a generation of people from ever actually existing in self-actualized form. Mm-hmm. And there are all of these, if we ask ourselves, if we look at what censorship does, um, it's it's easier to understand. And we look at who the censors are, it's easier to understand why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think that's really important to be contextualizing things within the logic of this is a not just like a state capacity that has been stood up to extract from, you know, bodies that are deemed disposable for whatever reason, but that this is ultimately um, an eliminationist agenda that appears in so many different ways and forms. I mean, this is why political economic analysis is helpful, right? Because it can show us how these values, right, how the values of, you know, actively not wanting certain types of people to exist because this, you know, ridiculous um, sort of fear of some kind of social contagion or degeneracy or whatever. You know, I think a lot of like the work of Talcott Parsons here, who um, was a kind of famous social scientist who in the, the 50s, the early 50s was writing about, you know, sickness being a form of deviancy and that we've got to like rehabilitate people as quickly as possible so that we can quash the deviancy and get everyone back to work or else we're going to become this society of malingerers this kind of like frankly hysteric behavior from like so many um academics and clinicians and people in positions of authority over decades and decades right and this is really all all of this hysteria is oriented around um you know 
monitoring, surveilling, um, identifying, and then removing certain populations from the we, right? And this is the legacy of the eugenics movement. This is the legacy of the rehabilitation movement. This is... And that all comes sort of downstream of, you know, also a, a whole scientific discipline um, that was sort of really in a lot of ways. And we talk about this uh, in our interview with Jim Downs about his book, uh, which is sort of about the beginnings of epidemiology and the relationship between, you know, the statistical study of human beings uh, sort of in cities and places of work and how these methods really originated in the um transatlantic slave trade, right? And in the management of bodies of enslaved Africans. And so you have this this kind of um, continuity, right, of this logic, right, that we and these values of deeming populations disposable, sort of marking, sorting, the warehousing, but also, as you're saying, this kind of consistent censorship of uh, who's part of society, who is not a part of society, kind of careful curation uh, process that in and of itself, I, I mean, to experience is probably really fucking traumatic, but um, creates a kind of also like generational removal of so many people from like uh, different collectivities and being able to like engage um, and creates these kind of communities that then can have total control exerted over sort of what they're even allowed to experience in terms of like thought and ideas to avoid any challenge to the institution itself. Yeah. And can we go ahead and park this one thing for later is that prison is disabling. But I just want to speak to the fact that you know, I feel like things got a little Foucauldian there. And I'm um, looking at eugenics and um, what is eugenics? Is it it's I believe it's the science of good breeding would be one um, one definition. Well, guess what? That sounds a lot like censorship or like editing. And we think of like, say, gene editing or who is valued and who gets to reproduce, whose lives matter. In mm-hmm. some ways, all those things are editing. They are censorship, um, these hate-based biologies or pseudosciences. And when we look back, actually, you know, whether we're talking about the asylum and psychiatry and the profile or the criminal profile in penitentiaries, these things are all very closely related. And there's a, a logic that is tied up there with um, one is mor- morality and the other is this sort of white supremacy and exclusion, mm-hmm. right? As if something or someone is a threat to normalcy, their very existence is a threat to normalcy and they must be excluded or they must be eliminated. And now we have this uh, ex- we have this normalization of exclusion and human caging, you know, whether we're talking about all of these things, this is a lot here to unpack, um, mass incarceration, and we're talking about even today trans folks, right? And whether or not they should even exist. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think one of my favorite definitions of eugenics that I like to go back to is uh, one from... Sir Francis Galton himself. This is from 1883, and he's the coiner of the term eugenics, and he called it um, a brief word to express the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which takes cognizance of all influences that tend in however remote a degree to give the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. 
And I feel like the then they otherwise would have had is so uh, much a part of this framework, right, in terms of how we're thinking about like how the logics of institutions and how the logics of carcerality really do construct um, the continuation in a lot of ways of racial capitalism's sort of primary need for white supremacy, right, and need for this kind of um, pra- practice of sort of curation censorship and elimination of who the body politic even gets to be, who that sort of quote unquote good taxpayer even can be is already, you know, super limited in the first place by the like sort of legal frameworks of citizenship and, and things like that. But, you know, beyond that, uh, like I, I was reading, I think it was in a piece of yours from 2021, you talk about how, you know, even with all of your legal documents being changed, uh, having your name changed with the state, right? That in order to get things administratively through the prison in terms of healthcare, in terms of, you know, uh, paperwork, right? Like you had to like use your old name that was not on your current documents because like the prison was instituting basically this like moment of administrative transphobia that they were forcing you (laughs) to experience every time you needed to file a piece of paperwork. Yeah. Can I speak on that real quickly? Oh, yeah. So Go for it. The interesting part of this is that I had um, had all of my identity documents um, changed so that my gender marker reflected female in my Washington state birth certificate. And every Washington state agency accepted that and recognized that, except for one. The Department of Corrections had told me they will not change that because of my judgment and sentence document that sent me to prison. And they told me that since the judge in 2005 sent me to prison as male, basically I was sentenced to be male until the duration of my sentence was finished, even though every state agency recognizes me as female. So essentially they're telling me that you were sentenced not only as a male in 2005, you're sentenced to be male until this particular year in the future. Yeah, I mean, talk about fucking psychic punishment and torture. It's, I mean, and and this is, I think, you know, one of the things that we wanted to talk about in terms of like talking about how prison is disabling that a lot of times I think people do think of these moments of censorship and sort of structural and administrative uh, violence as being innocuous, right? As not um, having a kind of effect other than maybe wasting your time. But in a way, like even the kind of psychological uh, wasting of time, like being forced to have your time wasted is in and of itself like a harm too. And I wonder if we could sort of get into talking about prison and disability? Because I know when we were emailing to plan this out, this is something that we definitely wanted to take some time to talk about. Yeah, thank you for bringing us back to that. And um, prisons disable in a number of ways. I'll just say when I went to prison and I got arrested January 6, 2004 for a domestic violence related incident, and I did not have a smartphone yet. My phone had a black and white screen. Mm-hmm. So here I am and, you know, traveling through time, I get out in 2022. And sometimes just to pay for parking, I have to scan a QR code and what, how am I supposed to figure all that out within days? Once I get out and I have these underdeveloped life skills, whatever they may be, prison has not only disabled me in the underdevelopment of life skills, but, you know, when we look at one of my favorite books, the DSM, mm. not, really, not really one of my favorites. 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, but you know, there's a definition of complex PTSD and what causes complex PTSD. And quite often there will be different definitions. One of the ones in, uh, I think the DSM-5 is that being a prisoner of war or being kidnapped for long periods of time. And they sort of dance around the idea of prison, but they, mm -hmm. they don't admit that being uh, in prison actually com uh, can cause complex PTSD, but being kidnapped for long periods of time or a POW can. And I'm thinking about why, and it's the social and it's the economic and legal implications of admitting that putting a person in prison causes complex PTSD, but mm -hmm. it absolutely does cause complex PTSD. Um, after 18 and a half years of prison, I've been sexually assaulted. I've been physically assaulted. I've been abused by guards. I've had some type of mental and emotional torture perpetrated on me by guards that I can't even begin to explain to you, even if I was willing to do so. And, um, you know, the fact that we're not admitting that as a society, you know, mm -hmm. this, you know, we won't certify it. Right. Mm -hmm. But prisons actually do disable people in a number of ways. And I don't know if, you know, I think with epistemology, maybe if we had more studies to show and prove how prisons are disabling people, um, just something as simple as say, what if you've never in 20 years, say you had a 20 year sentence, you've never had a hug. Why? Because a hug is against the rules. It's an infractable offense. And you've never had sex. What does that do to your brain? If you haven't had sex and you haven't even had a hug, you have not had any positive human contact in 20 years. Mm hmm. What does that do to a human brain? And can we just admit that there's nothing positive that can happen to keep people from having a hug or from having basic human needs fulfilled? And so all of these things that when we talk about prison being disabling, whether it's the underdevelopment of life skills, the erosion of life skills, whether it's complex PTSD or whatever, prisons absolutely disable. And I'm not sure, I think I'm probably kind of getting to where I'm suggesting that we need more studies to prove this so that we can kind of use the ADA in litigation um, as sort of an abolition logic in part of the plan. But the fact is that prisons disable it. And I'm finding, let me tell you about my experience if I could. And since I've been out of prison for four months now, and I've experienced so much trauma in life, um, that I just realized after a therapy session the other day, being shot in the head is something that I've forgotten about because I've had so much other trauma happen to me that out of all the trauma I've had, being shot in the head as a 16-year-old is forgettable. Well, all of the blows to the head I've had and all of the trauma that I've experienced, whether it's physical, sexual assaults, emotional, mental abuse, and it's a wonder that I'm functioning at all. But as I'm sort of um, dealing with the trouble focusing and some other issues I'm having mentally and emotionally, and I'm working through this with a therapist, these are questions that I'm asking myself. And I'm just wondering, like, is, is there something that we can do to revisit this and really think about prisons, about being disabling? Mm hmm. No, I think the, the way that you talked about the exclusion of the conditions of prison from the DSM is really uh, so important, right? Because if if the DSM were, for example, to acknowledge like what we are doing to people through the prison industrial complex, and this is everything from 
we we have to like include like INS facilities, jail people who are being held on pretrial yes. detention, like we have to um, include child protective services here, um, especially the way that that has been expanded during the pandemic, which has been frankly fucking terrifying to to watch. Um, you know these kind of investments um, in these carceral structures that have also just been beefed up. Like we've seen um, Biden uh, encouraging states and municipalities to use American Rescue Plan funding on um, getting cops tasers with slightly longer uh, taser leads so that they can social distance (laughs) while tasering people. Like, you know, this is the kind of level of... um, shit that like this is how you know in some ways like psychiatry is carceral right because the dsm is part of the kind of complicity right even the diagnostic manual about you know controlling taxonomies and what insurance will pay for right that could not reflect the reality of incarceration because you know you can't have anything on paper saying that like doing this fucking shit to people is is bad for them right because like we like to pretend that people who are um being warehoused in any one of these facilities i deserve to be there in some capacity and i can't imagine anyone who deserves any of this shit frankly i mean no one does and it's one of those things of like yeah i mean you can look at things in terms of like trying to like leverage the ADA, but the the f- sort of fundamental way that the ADA itself is structured, right, is structured in order to essentially basically always work out in favor of the boss. And when we're talking about like the sort of state being the boss and uh, yeah. how that's worked out in the courts, like the the federal court system has been pretty consistent at like letting state universities off the hook saying that state agencies and state universities are like allowed to just go ahead and discriminate against disabled people, for example, for whatever reason, because of cost benefit analysis reasons. Right. So when we start to think of like, oh, well, if the ADA is our best legal recourse, right, like that fucking sucks because the ADA already has this fundamental limitation where it's designed to essentially reflect the economic valuation of life and people who are incarcerated like are experiencing the most sort of negative cast of economic valuation that you can sort of possibly have in society at the moment. And to to try and think of like how narrow these pathways that we have right now legally uh, are, you know, it really, I think, sort of shows I think the limits of these kinds of civil rights models of um, trying to sort of seek remediation uh, as a afterthought through the courts, right? Like that in and of itself, too, as we're saying, is a kind of censorship of those claims of violence, of those claims of abuse and of the kind of buildup of evidence that might make it to the point that like, you know, Something like the DSM would have to include prison under CPTSD because if we're going to have some sort of bullshit like the DSM, then it should at bare minimum like have that in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not a fan of incremental change. And I'm quite honestly not advocating even for this to be included in the DSM. Yeah. (laughs) More than anything, I feel like we're, we're just we're kind of, I think, insert the exhaustion loop. Once again, because we can talk about the courts or whatever, it's just sort of like a, um, what would you call it? a pressure, a pressure release valve, right? Right. And the people can cut off a little bit of steam, but guess what's going to happen in the end? The people with power want you to use this particular method to let off steam because they know that that's all that's going to happen. 
particular, like, actually, I'm a big uh, believer in direct action, mm-hmm. quite honestly. And um, I believe in direct action because I believe there's got to be a point where people just need to build solidarity and say, guess what? This is our fucking values. This is what we're going we're gonna to do. And we're not afraid of the outcome. The only thing we're actually afraid of at this point is not living out our values. So this is our plan. Let's do it. Um, and that's a big, scary monster to take on. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and myself, like I touched on, I don't self-censor much either. Um, you know, and I, I believe that we're getting to a point where in society, most people do self-censor quite a bit. Sometimes I start to speak radically about revolution and I feel like um, I'm going to find myself sort of at the margins of the room and just, you know, cast out. That's why I don't I don't completely eliminate my hopes in like the ADA. And mm-hmm. the reason why I don't completely give up on the ADA is guess what? The PLRA is over with. The Prison Litigation Reform Act is burnt and there's nothing left there. Um, in terms of looking to the court, all I can find at this point is the ADA um, and trying to actually create epistemology, try to create knowledge where we understand that prisons do disable and create change through the courts there. It's either that or guess what, folks, direct action. Mm-hmm. No, and I think it's really also it's it's frustrating because, like, for example, when that Fourth Circuit decision uh, went through, like what I saw from like a lot of um cis disability activist was like oh okay now that the ada is like being challenged like trans folks better show up to help us defend it too you know next time the ada is like challenged by congress like you got to show up to fucking fight with us or whatever this kind of like a uh, language of entitlement or something as if you know we uh haven't already sort of fucked up by like not trying to more broadly, um, I think as a disability like community, right, this is certainly true of like disability justice movements that are like true disability justice movements, not things just like given that label um, as a kind of branding. Like the point is to be sort of like creating um, like movements and thinking around disability and pushing for uh, things that are especially supposed to be inclusive of the analysis that prison is disabling and that we're like seeking to try and like have these broader cross-disability alliances and, like, pursue intersectionality. And it's just so fucking disappointing to see people lean into that zero-sum mindset of basically, like, oh, now you got to just, like, work really hard to save what we have, where, like, you know, this kind of perspective that you're raising of, um, you know, what I think we talk about all the time on the show, which is, like, the kind of needing to balance, like, the short-term um, interventions, right, and like using the systems that we do have, right, and the long term at the same time, and also recognizing the fact that like there are these limitations built into many of the kind of legal ar- armatures, right, and that's why it's important to also be talking about direct action and be talking about like multifocal strategies and broad coalition building and building solidarity for many people doing many different projects all at once towards a kind of goal, um, because there can't be one strategy. Like we can't all be showing up in Congress to save the ADA. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 100%. More than anything at this point, um, you know, I'd like to see more action towards solidarity and I don't want to see rooms split apart. And I know there's a difference between reformists and abolitionists and that's okay. 
Um, What's not okay is when people call themselves abolitionists and don't even know that they're reformists. Please just call yourself a reformist, know you're a reformist, be a reformist, that's okay. Um, And direct action and what we're talking about with direct, direct action is something that each person has to decide for themselves and the level of direct action that they are ready for. But, um, you know, more than anything at this point, when I'm talking about anything that I'm doing, we're trying to help folks survive living in a cage and not to build a better cage. We're not trying to get prison right. We don't want prison to get better. What we want is to help people live in prison and not die until we can get them out. That's why I'm involved in work such as uh, publishing incarcerated writers, because we know that the abuses of incarcerated people happen best when they are isolated, Mm -hmm. meaning when no one knows what's happening to them, then that's when the bullies wearing the uniforms are just having a heyday. They're having a good time. So I don't want to see any folks living in a cage who are incarcerated and isolated at the same time. That's one of the reasons why publishing from prison is so important, is that we don't want to continue to give a microphone to power and the people who are in power, um, you know, running the prison regime. What we want to do is hear from the folks who are living through this. What's going on? How can we support you? And so uh, as I've been publishing myself, I'm trying to help others publish as well. And I'm working with some folks with the Freelance Solidarity Project, which is working to actually unionize incarcerated writers. And that's important for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is because we know with the 13th Amendment, um, slavery is actually legal. Uh, Prisoners don't have to be paid, but guess what? We're trying to get incarcerated writers to have a voice and to talk about what's happening in prisons, what's happening to them and their peers, and to be paid fairly as well uh, for their work. And as we're doing this and we're building community, there are a lot of possibilities that can come from this. Absolutely. I wonder if we could talk um, about the piece that you contributed to the Press in Prison guidebook um, that we talked about at the top of the episode, um, which is about uh, what editors can do to help try and support incarcerated writers. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking about that. Um, You know, one of the things that I've been seeing over the last few years is um, the own voices movement, meaning that folks have their own voices, that incarcerated people are actually telling their own stories and publishing instead of having it done through someone else's lens or through someone else's eyes. And so we're seeing incarcerated folks tell their stories or um, publish stories, but I'm seeing a lot of men, a lot of cis hetero men are getting a lot of opportunities and I'm happy to see them get those opportunities. But what I'm not seeing is for women and particularly women of color and trans and gender non-conforming folks getting the same opportunities. So I'm seeing uh, a lot of cis hetero men published in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other publications. I'm not seeing women and folks who get lost under the umbrella of women, women of color, trans, gender non-conforming folks are not getting those same opportunities. So one of my contributions was an editor's guide to help get incarcerated writers there, but to do that intentionally, because I don't feel like anyone's intentionally leaving out women or gender nonconforming and trans folks or disabled folks. 
Um, but I think that if we're not intentional, we're going to miss those voices and we're going to miss that brilliance. So we need to be intentional and in not only wanting to hear these voices, but sometimes even going as far as to help folks get to where they have the capacity to actually write the story. And that's what I'm challenging editors to do. And so let's let's be, you know, let's understand that this is more than about stories. This is about, um, you know, the future of women's liberation. This is about generations of people. And there's a lot more to it than telling stories. And I hope this isn't just, you know, about entertainment. And sometimes when I'm writing stories, I feel like it's only serving for entertainment and that it's, you know, like the train wreck of what it means to be trans in prison mm -hmm. and not actually bringing justice to trans folks in the end. And I'm even seeing folks who want to write about trans folks, but I'm getting to the point where I'm very insistent on making sure that if folks are going to write about trans folks in prison, that they either have a co-author, someone who is trans, or make sure that they're doing something that will benefit trans folks and get us somewhere instead of just living off our stories. And I've had people tell me, guess what? Um, I don't want to just write about you. Could you give me some leads? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I could, but it seems like you're asking me to just serve up some stories for you. And they tell me, well, you know, I write about structures, not about individuals. <laughs> so let's not act so self-righteous. Let's make sure to actually not take up space and, and take up space and, and not acknowledge, you know, what's actually happening here. Let's have trans folks take up a little bit of space telling their own stories as well. Let's have women taking up this space and not just have these stories told um, and filtered through someone else's eyes as they benefit individually from these stories. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think it's the classic expose problem, right? Which is that a lot of the way that these stories are told is sort of from this fundamental position of exploitation of, um, you know, the Geraldo Rivera um, series that, you know, made Willowbrook famous in Staten Island. Um, you know, these kinds of like moments where, you know, these narratives only get to sort of exist in the world. It was like that, uh, what you were talking about in the beginning, just about sort of wanting to, um, you know, write accounts that don't exist, that exist beyond, um, you know, the kind of medical records, the legal records, the court records, records of eviction, you know. But the one of those other forms that I think has sort of really uh, mitigated, like the way that also this archive exists is like that kind of expose form, right? Which almost takes the need for like having a person speak for themselves off of the table in a lot of ways, right? Like this can be the kind of, oh, here's, you know, the way for all the people sort of safe in their homes to sort of see what it's like on the inside and <laughs> toward what, right? Like it, it as a kind of fundamental, um, you know, genre form, right? Like there are these limitations to the expose that, um, you know, we we can't expose our way to, to liberation. Like we actually have to ha like, help people um do this sort of thinking and writing oh, yeah you know what i mean and like let's talk about that can we do that yeah yeah well let's talk about what we can actually do and one of the things that i'd like to ask at this time if folks who are listening are journalists or editors empowerment avenue is actually asking for folks who are interested in working with incarcerated writers to help them publish so if you're interested, please try empowermentav.com. Um, you'll find that, or you can go ahead and just contact me at Jessica Phoenix Sylvia on Instagram or at abolition underscore Jess on Twitter. 
And what we're looking for is writers and editors who are, are who want to help incarcerated folks publish. And then second of all, if, if you're just someone who's not a, a journalist or an editor, but you, you want to be involved, you want to do something, uh, studyandstruggle.com has a pen pal program. And um, just go to studyandstruggle.com, go to get involved, look for pen pals. It'll show you how to actually fill out a form and get a pen pal. And we actually have a lot of women um, in this program in women's prisons. And I would encourage folks to actually support women if you can, because more than anything, um, I've seen a lack of resources for women in women's prisons. So those are a couple of ways that folks can get involved if they'd like to. I'll make sure also that we've got uh, links to all of that, as well as the press in prison um, guide from Haymarket that we were talking about as well. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things too, I think that uh, we we've been trying to do in our Discord servers, like when we started reading Decarcerating Disability by Liat Ben Moshe, we also encourage members to get involved in pen pal programs and to meet pen pals because, you know, part of the frustration that sort of that I think incarcerated friends often have is that like, you know, you feel completely like cut off in so many ways, right? And that oftentimes friends will be like reading this great, awesome book that speaks to your experience and, you know, posting about it and having a good time sort of on the outside. And like, no one's writing you a letter to be like, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? <laughs> you know, um, we have to like think about beyond just the political education, the ways that like community care need to be involved in all of the things that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Community care is the key there. Um, you know, I hear oftentimes in, in this day and time, self-care and self-care to me, really is about capitalism right it's individualized it's this mm -hmm. you need to care for yourself i'm sorry but i i can't always do it for myself and i need community more than anything and folks who are incarcerated and i touched on this before folks who are incarcerated are quite often abused when they are isolated and when staff members know that they don't have family or folks there who care about them guess what they know that that's a vulnerable target. And trans women are 13 times more likely to be sexually assaulted than uh, other prisoners who are not trans. And so that just highlights how there's certain vulnerabilities to certain populations. Um, vulnerable populations are, are often categorized as those who are mentally ill, those who are pregnant, or those who are trans. But more often than not, what I have seen in my lived experience is that when folks have someone there, who is willing to call at least and hold prison officials accountable, whether they're withholding medication or they're housing someone in a dangerous situation or whatever the case may be. When folks have families who are willing to call in, generally those situations um, are acted upon. And when folks don't have someone calling in, guess what? More often than not, they are neglected and the abuse continues. And when those prison officials know that a uh, prisoner is isolated, they often feel emboldened. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I think maybe as a final topic, we talked about wanting to make sure that we got a chance to touch on reentry. And you said, you know, it's important to remember that the fact that getting people out of prison is not the end of a process, but actually the beginning. And I thought that that might be the kind of perfect place for us to end on today is talking about reentry for a second. Yeah, absolutely. You know, reentry is something I'm still learning about too with 
Uh, all of my experience of being incarcerated, um, here I am out of prison for about four months and I'm learning a lot about myself and through my own experience. Let me just say first though, that a lot of re-entry, um, if we think about the work that it takes to make sure that folks don't go to prison in the first place, and I know that you had a great conversation with, I believe it was Diana Joy and Mon M mm-hmm. um, with the uh, the feminist jail. And one of the things that Diana had said that was absolutely brilliant is that what if we actually just make sure a person has some of the supports they need before they ever have a traumatic incident and get locked up? And I know that that's what I needed more than anything when I got locked up January 4th, 2000, uh, or January 6th, 2004 for a domestic violence incident. I know that there were some supports that I needed and I was quite frankly hopeless and knew that I wasn't going to get any supports. And so got to the point where I was hopeless and actually accepted that outcome. But, and let me also say that when a person's having a mental health um episode the last thing you want to see is someone with a gun show up Mm -mm. Mm -mm. so so more than anything um we need other ways of responding to certain things such as folks having mental health emergencies without including people with guns because guess what folks cops with guns are not equipped for that and also no cops either thank you Um, and then for, you know, learning about reentry, let me just say that there are a few things that are definitely important. Um, but one of the things that I'm learning is that um, there are some people in the world that will not ever let me forget about my criminal record. And no matter what I do, I'll never be anything more than that, which is really upsetting because and quite frankly, these are some of the same people that when you talk to them about the history of America, they'll say, well, let's just forget about slavery and <laughs> genocide with Native Americans. That's in the past. Um, but with reentry work, more than anything, what I'm finding is that, look, we need housing. Mm-hmm. So and that's just true for everyone. Housing is a huge issue and making sure that we have affordable housing is a huge issue. Number two. I know people who are struggling, right, to to find work and actually pay their rent after serving a prison sentence. And one of the reasons is because, well, there's this social death that happens to a person, even though they've paid their debt to society, whatever that means, and been released. Yeah. Right. And so people don't actually have a right to work. And um, so finding employment, finding housing, those type of things are a huge obstacle. So if if we could do something to actually get rid of, you know, in, a, in an age when, with information when everyone can just Google anyone and find out everything about them, a person's criminal record is such a huge obstacle. And then beyond that, we have these usually legal financial obligations attached at the end of our sentences where we have these, you know, huge court burdens um, financially, these, these bills that we have to pay. Um, you know, when someone's done serving their sentence, is there a way we can get to a point where we stop dehumanizing a person? We stop excluding them from uh, different areas of life. For instance, I'm not even, since I'm a felon, I can't even use most popular dating sites. There are a lot of places that I cannot live. You know, I remember listening to a popular daytime uh, show that I'm not going to name. (laughs) The hostesses said that she doesn't believe violent criminals should ever have the right to vote. So my point is that, 
if, if I cannot actually participate in society, why would I invest in it? Meaning I want to, I want to do the right thing. I want to invest in society, but why would I participate and invest in a society that refuses to reciprocate that? Why right. would I actually do that when I'm stuck in this divestment feedback loop where society is constantly excluding me or abandoning me? And those things are, quite frankly, they're white supremacist logics that we're perpetuating anyway. And so um, I'm just hoping more than anything with reentry work that we can stop bringing fear into a situation as a society before it is needed and that we can try to welcome folks as human beings and not dehumanize them as a criminal record and not fear them, mm-hmm. but just for face value and help folks actually uh, get their lives back. Because, you know, I'll speak for myself. The last thing I want to do is let someone down who believes in me. And I can tell you that as a trans girl, I was homeless at 17 years old on the streets because I was trans and I felt abandoned and excluded by the world. I felt betrayed by the world. And I never actually learned to believe in myself until I had someone finally believe in me. And that was a big turning point for me. And humanization as a concept, if we just basic humanization is so important to stop that divestment feedback loop. Because, well, you know, when I'm preaching to the, the choir here with an abolition show, we'll never arrest our way out of this. But with reentry, humanizing people and not bringing fear into the situation is important. And then those objective needs of housing, employment, as we're surviving capitalism, are so important. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think in terms of like, you know, building the kind of world we want where people are not disposable. It's one of the most important sort of pieces of the puzzle where if folks want to start get involved, getting involved in like mutual aid or organizing, this is like a, a area where there's a lot of great need um, and a lot of like great organizations in your local area that you can tap into um, and join up sort of and help out people who are already doing this work, whether it's like doing stuff like harm reduction or doing, you know, straight up reentry work like people want like don't necessarily always have a place to stay when they're released and like you can be held in prison longer for not being able to sort of line up housing for right when you're supposed to be able to get out and these are the ways that you know, administratively, that violence is sort of um, then exponentially like it continues beyond the sentence, right? Like that that the whole framework of like, oh, someone's paid their debt to society and they've also left prison with like a huge bill is just so bleakly fucking ironic, you know, and then it's sort of compounded by these other structural and political economic factors that are essentially designed to you know, further dispose of people who have already been marked as disposable. And, you know, we have to be, I think, thinking beyond just, you know, decarceration, beyond just closing the institutions. Like it's about destroying, but also building at the same time, because we have to sort of hold these two um, horizons sort of at once, right? Like we have, this is hard work to be doing and hard things to be thinking through, right? And the sort of easy answers are like, 
you know, leaning into carcerality and leaning into the idea that prisons and, and jails and police keep us safe when all they really do is, you know, perpetuate these systems of administrative violence. You know, they're the yeah. they're the cogs <laughs> in that in that administration. And the, the interesting thing is, you know, and I don't know, I like to use analogies and and we've learned through, um, you know, environmentally, we know that we can't just throw everything away and be rid of it. We can't just throw everything to the dump. We, we've learned that our, our planet, you know, it, it's not sustainable, that we need to recycle, that we need to take care of our planet. L let's think of people that way as well. We can't just throw everyone away. We're not just going to throw people away and 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 that's going to get us out of it. We, we can't arrest our way out of the problem. You know, can, can we start, can we think of people as recyclable too? <laughs> can we can we think of a more socially sustainable? Yeah, I, I know we think about and being environmentally sustainable. Can we be more socially sustainable? And um, one of the things that it takes is a skill. As even if we do suffer harm, we have to be there for each other. We have to be equipped to be resilient, and we have to be equipped to help survivors. Um, to get through harm, whether that's, you know, loss of property or something where you're having trouble paying your bills because of something that happened or you were physically assaulted or anything, right? These different harms that happen, we have to be equipped to be there for the people in our communities. And we, we have to um, ourselves have the capacity and the resilience to not be so afraid of harm that we don't experience life and we have to exclude people for our own safety. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Jess, that's the perfect um, sentiment, I think, to leave it on. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really, you know, it's a maddening conversation always to talk about this stuff, but it's been wonderful talking to you and, and getting to hear about your work in depth as well. Thank you. I had a good time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. And if you want to um, check out Empowerment Avenue, uh, that is at empowermentav.com. Um, we will link to that as well as the uh, press in prison guide from Haymarket and Scalawag in the episode description, as well as the piece of Jess's that is in uh, Pen America that we were talking about. And if you'd like to follow Jess, uh, she is at abolition underscore Jess on Twitter and at Jessica Phoenix Sylvia on Instagram. And listeners, if you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.